0: Welcome to the Sim Cafe, a podcast produced by the team at Innovative Sim Solutions, edited by Shelley Hauser. Join our host Deb Tauber as she sits down with subject matter experts from across the globe to reimagine clinical education and the use of simulation. So pour yourself a cup of relaxation, sit back, tune in, and learn something new from the Sim Cafe.
1: Welcome to another episode of The Sim Cafe. Today, we are blessed to have Bob Armstrong. And Bob is the Executive Director of the Centera Center for Simulation and Immersive Learning and Director of Corporate Relations. Bob is a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy, where he earned a Bachelor of Science degree in Engineering and a graduate of the Naval Postgraduate School, where he earned a Master of Science degree in Computer Science. Bob Armstrong was also the 2020 pandemic president for the Society of Simulation and Healthcare. Thank you and welcome to the Sim Cafe.
2: Hi, Deb. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Thank you. And I would like you to share your story into simulation. And thank you for your service.
2: Oh, thank you so much. So uh, my journey into simulation started Probably a long time ago in the 80s when I was on recruiting duty and I was was an officer recruiter for the state of Indiana for about three years. We started using a systematic recruiting technique where we were capturing all of the data we were doing. So everything from a phone call to a mailer to how many people we just walked up to and started talking on the campus from Purdue University or Ball State or someplace like that. And I wrote a program to analyze all this data. And then we started to do some predictive analysis on what it would take for us to uh, actually meet our mission and, and maybe meet it earlier in the year. And, and so it gave us some insight there. And that was my first real introduction to you know, computer-based modeling and, and analysis and, and then simulating what we could do. And then, interestingly enough, later on in my Marine Corps career, I was the first modeling and simulation officer the Marine Corps ever had. So I was specifically focused on creating simulations that allowed the Marine Corps units to train uh, when they didn't have access to a training area or, or something like that. So we had a number of tools already that we were using, but we developed several more between 2001 and 2005 when I was running all those programs. And we we actually developed a lot of these things in-house with this really interesting small team I had. And some money, because it takes money to do these things. So I've been involved in modeling and simulation solidly since 1997. So I'm in, in DOD until 2005 directly, and then as a contractor until 2012. And then I jumped over to healthcare and have been involved in healthcare simulation ever since.
1: Wow. So you were in data collection area way back
2: yeah, we were data collection and data creation. And then and then just, well, let's analyze this, right? I mean, because we were held to some performance standards and we were trying to figure out what those performance standards needed to be. And then the interesting thing was we could start doing data projections to determine whether our performance was going to work based on our history at Purdue University or Indiana University, Purdue University in Indianapolis or uh, at Indiana State University, which doesn't exist anymore. And, you know, so it was interesting. It was an interesting time where... Yeah, you know, I was essentially building these data models when I wasn't recruiting, of course, to analyze what our performance needed to be.
1: All right. Thank you very much. And we all know data drives decisions, right? Drove so, all
2: our decisions. That's for, for
1: sure. Yep. So all simulationists out there, make sure you're keeping track of your data. That's right. Okay. Do you have a favorite simulation story or most impactful story that you would like to share with our listeners?
2: Well, yeah, you know something that really mattered a lot when I was doing it was when I convinced someone that the simulations that we were building for the Marine Corps were not toys. And I built this program. I was the lead project lead for this. I didn't I didn't code anything on it. I ran the team for the deployable virtual training environment, and essentially, it was a set of networked laptop computers that allowed you to essentially run through a very, very complex targeting and acquisition set of procedures that are really hard to do in real life. And so when you don't do them a lot, you, you know, your skills degrade. And so we built this kit in order for uh, people to practice this stuff when they were sitting in a tent or on a ship or wherever, right? These Marines. And I took it around the country to, to show to all the Marine Corps leadership because I needed their buy-in on this project because we were looking for some long-term funding for it. I'll never forget this. I was briefing at that time, General Buck Bedard, who, had, who I had worked with in Somalia. He was an infantry officer and real Marines Marine, kind of guy that, you know, just looks like a Marine, right? And, and he's looking at this. He said, hey, this, this is just like what my nephews and grandkids play computer games with. You know, he says, I, we don't need this stuff. We don't need this stuff. And of course, he was using a language significantly more colorful than that. And then I explained to him, I'm like, no, I don't think you're getting it, sir. And I said, so this Marine over here on this laptop that's flying this Cobra helicopter right now is looking at this Marine over here that's driving a Humvee. And he finally realized that these guys were interacting. He just thought they were all playing individual games. And again, this was a very complex, you know, graphically intensive platform at the time. And I just remember when the light went on and he said, oh my gosh, I get it now. And that was so satisfying because there were, you know, it guys like even me that, you know, I wasn't interested in not training for real, but we needed something when we couldn't train for real, right? So this simulation-based encounter, this complete virtual environment that we built of exact battlefield specifications for training areas that we use and other places that we had data for, was really, really important. And it... It made me appreciate it because i I didn't feel like I was banging my head against the wall, which is usually the way it goes, right mm-hmm. uh, so that was impactful for me and it it was good to see the lights go on for this person who was probably at that time fifteen, 20 years older than me and had never really gotten it before.
1: That is a great story. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. thank you what do you what do you see as the future of simulation? Where do you see things going?
2: That's a beautiful question. I'm looking forward to answering this. You and others would have heard a lot more from me about this had COVID not happened because it would have been my focus for 2020 when I was president of the society. You know, we've gotten really good at, I think, and we probably, you could argue that we are close to perfection when it comes to latex and, and synthetic skinned models and the ability to represent enough realism for us to do some task training and to have an interaction that is worthy and valuable Same thing on our standardized patient, simulated patient front. I think, you know, we've got some really good standardized patient programs out there that can really help the learners suspend disbelief while they're having a discussion with this patient that's not really a patient, right? We do all those things really well, but what has got to happen is that we've got to leverage some of these significantly more um, technically challenging Technologies like augmented, virtual, mixed reality, extended reality, in order to create opportunities for people to train in this really, really engaging and very, very immersive way when they're away from a simulation center. So, my simulation center, we're very fortunate. We're, we're fairly large, 25,000 square feet. I've got 120 standardized patients. We do the full gambit from soup to nuts when it comes to simulation. We do a lot of, of uh, Activity in support of the residency program, the undergraduate program, and then four fellowships as well. So we're engaged at the Children's Hospital and the, and the Norfolk General Hospital across the street. We can't get people in here as much as they want to be in here. I mean, it's just the scheduling of it and the access to what we do is limited. And you can't always solve that problem by, uh, by just adding more people to the mix. And we're an accredited simulation center. We're accredited by the society. We're accredited by the American. College of Surgeons is an AEI institute as well. So it's it's a challenge. And, you know, you have a situation like uh, COVID pop up. And the first thing everybody wants is, well, we should have some of that really cool virtual reality that everybody has. It's like, guess what? There isn't any of that out there. And we should have been working on it five years ago in order to get it to where it could be relied on to the degree which, which we needed to rely on it during COVID. And so I see that as... as one half of what needs to happen, and part of that half includes a tremendous amount of data collection that and and the technology around it that creates dynamic learning. You know, you Deb might be really good at certain things and might need more work in other areas. I might meet, have the exact opposite situation. Right now, when we train, we basically focus on the exact same learning objectives at the exact same pace when we go through some learning, and and this this a uh, idea of tailorable or dynamic learning that really f- understands what you're good at already validates that but then over focuses or focuses more we'll say on the areas where you have the greatest weakness that's the kind of thing that's going to really be valuable both for these you know hold it in your hand and do it on your own time simulation you know immersive simulation tools as well as what we are going to want to be able to do at an individualized level in a simulation center which again It's still challenging to do because we're bringing people in and in force. The other thing that I think is going to be really important for us to focus on is this idea of data and the utility of data and creating models around patient data, whether it's mock patient data or real patient data, to help us start to understand how to better make diagnoses and create treatment regimes based on that data. And while the vast majority of what we do in our simulation centers now is training and educate people, we're talking about needing a place where the training and education around the use of that data needs to exist because it can't just wait until you get into residency when you're already drinking from a fire hose. And now you also have to understand how to deal with this artificial intelligence, and this machine language. I think that's something that's kind of, that simulation centers should be leaning into, we'll say. And it's going to be hard. Because I mean, the majority of us in in healthcare simulation are not computer scientists. We're not data scientists. We're either some form of healthcare. I'm an anomaly in that. We know that the majority are they're physicians, they're nurses, they're allied health professionals, they're technicians, they're EMTs, they're all sorts of different types of healthcare person that have a hankering for supporting and loving simulation. But we're talking about really critical skills that are challenging, far surpassing doing complex programming. And that's an area that we're going to have to create and, and kind of normalize it for use and learning in order for us to be prepared for the future. So those are the two big things, you know, the more immersive, augmented virtual reality type tools, and then the, the, really leaning hard into the AI and machine language and how we can train people to use that in an effective way.
1: Yeah, we're going to need people like you to help lead us through that because this well,
2: it's I, you're going to need we're going to need people better than me at this. A lot of my data stuff is old, and uh, but I get your point. It's kind of funny. We were real successful in, in the military whenever we used and were building these models and simulations, putting them into place because. Let's be honest, the Department of Defense has a pretty crazy job. You know, we don't have 5,000 simulation centers across the country like we have 5,000 hospitals across the country, right? Or even 250 simulation centers that are accredited by the society. We don't have that many military simulation centers. So you could really husband your resources. And, you know, if you needed to have a PhD in cognitive psychology alongside a PhD in math, alongside a PhD in computer science, that was leading all these projects, you could afford that, right? To DOD kind of level affording. We know that we can't do that at a gigantic level. Let's put it this way. We can't do that to scale in the healthcare simulation realm. So we're going to have to be smart about how we go about doing it. And that's really where I see the society being able to help by bringing the attention to that need.
1: Yeah, exactly. I completely agree. When everyone thinks alike, no one thinks a lot. Right. Now I'm going to, this is a kind of a long question, two part. So the first part is tell us about what was going on with your center, um, at the time of the pandemic. And then how was your presidency? How did you, how did you feel when you found out, wow, we're not going to be able to have, have the, the IMSH meeting?
2: Right. Right. So first, first part of that question first. So, um, you know, we we were like everybody else. We were listening really hard to what the trend was going to be. And when I got word that we needed to, I'll use the term again, lean into a work from home, I started making some plans with my leadership on my team about, you know, who we were going to send home first, how we were going to do this. And we did the same thing everybody else did, right? We, we, we just left the building for the most part and took as many of our computing assets with us so that we could stay on the network. And then, we have about 85 external clients that we provide support for, and they all still needed support as well as our internal support. So we had to figure out how to, how to provide this support for everybody. And so we shifted our business model and figured out how to do everything over Zoom in about three weeks. And I spent a lot of money getting us set up on Zoom because we we knew we could not survive on a on a free license with that. And we created the mechanism by which we could monitor what was going on in Zoom so that we could. You know, control it the same way we would control things through our external cameras and whatnot in our rooms. And then we just got to work. It was a real flurry, and, and we did that. And then we started coming back in in June at a very limited basis. And we came, and then when the school year started in August of 2020, we, we ramped up even further. I tried to keep as many people out of the center as I could. And quite frankly, in doing that, I placed a really challenging burden on the folks that were here. The folks that were here, we were probably doing the work of three people and at complete cost to our own. You know, I'm from the school of you got to do what you got to do. And that was what we had to do. And then we basically brought everybody back after, you know, we had, everybody had an opportunity to be uh, vaccinated. And we've we've been working from the center ever since, completely masked up when we're not in our office. It was just cathartic and wacky and, oh my gosh, how are we going to do this kind of thing? And it was interesting because we helped to write some of the standards that our school was operating against because we had to execute. During that exact same time, here I am, the, the new 2020 president. I've, I've done a couple of things in support of the society in person. I attended a modeling simulation leadership conference in Jacksonville, Florida, about a week before balloon went up for, as we say in the Marine Corps, for COVID. And for us, we immediately did an awful lot of What's going to happen with IMSH? What about all our other events? We immediately just put a kibosh on any in-person event. So we didn't hold any in-person events at all. I did the first completely Zoom-based board meeting for the board. And we've gotten really good at those things now. We did what we would normally do in two days and we got it done in six hours. I wouldn't say it was the best board meeting we ever had, but it did what we needed to do, right? A lot of what you do in a board meeting is you talk, right? It's hard to do in Zoom. Your uh, environment is so constrained. But anyway, so we did all that. And then immediately, Jen Manos, our executive director, and I, we were immediately started looking into PPP loans and what we needed to do for, you know, what, what were we going to do with SimOps? What were we going to do with IMSH? Jen and her team, great kudos to them, you know, we're able to Come up with a, a really decent plan for going virtual, and that and, and we did at SimOps, and then we essentially replicated that. Some obvious enhancements, I think, for the virtual twenty twenty one conference. At that point, you know, it was really challenging. There were I probably talked to to Jen Manos and other members of the staff every day for the entire time, just as we were touching base about things. And hey, did you hear about this? And got this word back. And it was just the kind of thing that everybody needed to know about because there was no one person that knew enough about this to answer all the questions and to get us to a a good conference, which is kind of our culminating event. But more importantly, we were really worried about the society going out of business. I think that's something that folks, and I, I believe Julie mentioned this, you know, a lot of people, they forget how much these things cost to put on and we're contractually obligated years ahead. And, you know, we had the force majeure, which was act of God, kind of everybody gets out of this and we're just, nobody's going to get charged for it. So that really helped us to get out of those obligations. But without that, we might not have been able to have afforded an IMSH 2022 in LA, just to kind of put it into perspective for you. And so I spent the entire time I was president worried about the, not worried about it, but just monitoring and being very, very wisely and prudently concerned will say over the, the long-term longevity and life of the society. One of the things I'm most happy that we were able to do is that we made the conference, the virtual conference free, unless you needed continuing medical education credits. I think that was a really great way to say, hey, we get it. It's not going to be quite the same. And we're not going to gouge you or even just ask you for any money, again, unless you need the CE credits, because there is a cost associated with those.
1: Great leadership. Thank you so much. You guys had to be, you know, very deliberate on your decisions and really work together. And, you know, it's not like it's a paid position. Right. Thank you for your service again. Sure. Bob, is there anything that you would like to leave the simulationist, your tribe with, what we can do for you guys?
2: One thing that I think, there's probably a couple of things, but the, the one first thing that comes to mind is, is to get involved. And by getting involved, I'm not, you know, I'm talking about, you know, joining committees and being a volunteer when you can. I mean, that's certainly a valuable thing. But also share your opinion. You know, what's kind of interesting, it, the uh, society is well governed. We have a really good, strong board and our board is well organized and we the board understands what they can do and what they can't do and what they should do and what they shouldn't do. Sometimes those are four different things, right? And the board is really interested in the long-term health of the society and making sure that the society is meeting its mission. But there are lots of things that we need help with in the society and just as far as promoting simulation. All, all the two things I was talking about there, you know, augmented mixed reality and data science. We need people that know about that and they're interested in that and that have an idea about how the society can help to promote that in ways different than I was perhaps able to and can now. And again, I'm not on the board anymore. I'm completely free of all but maybe one responsibility when it comes to formally with the society right now. We need people to pick up the reins on those ideas and help steer them. And again, it's you can have an idea about it. It's, this isn't about getting your way. It's about contributing to the discussion that helps the society determine what is our way. And so you've got to come into it with a feeling of service and a don't be hurt when your ego gets bruised because somebody doesn't agree with you. doesn't mean they don't like you. It just means they don't agree with you. That involvement around what you would like to see the society do and how you would like the society to have an impact, being able to share those things to pretty much anybody, you know, in a position of leadership because they actually do get to the board, especially when we have a lot of people talking about things. Uh, The other thing is really related to this, what I just talked about too, but it's see if you can figure out what your needs are when it comes to these advanced aspects of simulation that I was talking about. Because our vendors who build the technology that we use and who are essentially in the seat to build the things that to build our future for us, right? They need to hear from us and they need to hear how we're going to use these things and want to use these things. And let me tell you what, talking about how you're going to use a technology that has never existed before that that you don't have real experience with is a really, really challenging thing. You need to reduce it to the learning objectives that you're trying to achieve. And they say well if if these are my learning objectives that are critical how could i leverage this new technology to do these things and oh by the way even more importantly what are the learning objectives that we have the hardest time achieving what are the gaps in our learning those are the things that keep me up at night how could those be converted into a into a potentially technological solution to achieve those those learning objectives that's a really really hard thing to do i used to do it for the military all the time and it used to it used to take years but it, it gets you to the future because it helps you to understand the value of the thing you're not going that you're creating. You know, we didn't create the pen to replace a pencil. We just created a pen because it was a different type of writing until maybe 30 years ago. You couldn't erase a pen anyway, right? Yeah, yeah. And I know there's ways around that, but you know, a pen has a rule, a pencil has a role, a magic marker has a role, a sharpie has a role. All these things, dry eraser markers have a role. They all have a role. They all do similar things, but you can't use one to do all of them effectively, right? What are the things that you can't do with a mannequin that you want to be able to do in virtual reality? That's kind of the way we need people to think so that we can help to build this future that we want to live in.
1: That was a great way to articulate that concept. Excellent job. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Bob, if our listeners want to get a hold of you. Is there any place that they can reach out to you? Are you on social media?
2: You bet. I'm on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Leg Week, L-E-G-W-E-A-K. It is the opposite of Armstrong, if you think of it weirdly. And I'm also on LinkedIn. That is also my LinkedIn handle is Leg Week. I tend to reuse things that, that stick with me. So you can get me there. And then uh, there's always email. And I'm not hard to find because I tell everybody how to reach me. So uh, LinkedIn and and Twitter are the two ways that are probably from social media.
1: I really want to thank you so much for your service and for this opportunity to be interviewed on the Sim Cafe. And with that, stolen from Dr. Frampus, happy simulating.
2: Yes, thank you very much. It's great to be here.
0: Thanks for joining us here at the Sim Cafe. We hope you enjoyed connect with us at www.innovativesimsolutions.com. And be sure to hit that like and subscribe button so you never miss an episode of The Sim Cafe.